0: Welcome to Short Story Discussions, the podcast by Short Story Book Club for people who love short stories. Get the best short stories delivered to your door each month when you subscribe at shortstorybookclub.com. And now, here's our show. We are joined today by Holiday Reinhorn, a short story author and co-founder of Ledeh a nonprofit that provides academic and arts programming to at-risk adolescent girls in Haiti. She has recently published in American Short Fiction, Volume 21, Issue 67, Summer 2018. The story is Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness, and we are delighted to have her speak with us about it today. Thank you for joining us,
1: Holiday. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Donna. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, first, I would like us to begin by you're just telling us a little bit about yourself. So you're a very busy woman, um, n- not <laughs> only just just from what I mentioned in the summary there, but you also have a lot of other things going on. So let's just hear a little bit about um, what you feel comfortable sharing.
1: Sure, sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a short story writer by trade. So I came to fiction writing sort of in a circuitous way. I was originally an actor. The high school that I went to did not have any sort of arts program, so I used to write speeches and give them around town. And that's how I started just doing some writing and, and public speaking combined. And then I ended up doing acting in college which then I started uh, doing some performance art. And I, I lived in New York City, and I wrote my own work and performed it in downtown theaters in the 90s, which was a kind of exciting time to be doing that in New York. Um, there were a lot of theaters that produced one-person shows, and and um, so that was a really fun part of my uh, time. And then I joined a writing group, and started doing um, some short story writing, and I just fell in love with it, and from there decided to go to graduate school, so I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Through that experience, I my first book was a collection of short stories called Big Cats that was 13 different stories, and, you know, since my background had been in theater, um, I wrote primarily in the first person, and they were more like... Monologues, You know, they really come from the voice, the voice of the character. And that's what really was my jumping off point. And then I started working on a novel after that. My son was born. During that time, I was working on the novel. And I have about half of it written, but I I really just feel that I am a short story writer at heart. And so while I was writing this novel, I was also writing other short stories on the side. So the story that we want to talk about today called Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness and it just appeared in the American Short Fiction uh, summer issue number 67. I actually just got back from a trip to Austin where I read the story. It was really time to go down and visit the editors, two amazing women uh, that run that magazine. And um, Anyway, that story is what we're going to talk about today. Did you have any other questions about that?
0: Well, so you mentioned performance art what was your performance art like
1: i guess if i had to compare it to something it would be like Spalding gray sort of acted storytelling the first piece that i did was a show that was called fish and when i first moved to new york city I, I worked in a seafood restaurant that was next to the united nations and i used to work the night shift you know to support auditioning and and doing my theater stuff during the day and um one night, really kind of crazy characters would come into the bar. Some international shady characters. During the day, there would be diplomats having lunch, and then at night, the underworld would come in. One evening, there was a. Uh, that, this was right during the, the height of the conflict in the former U- Yugoslavia. So there was a Serbian hitman and a Croatian man eating at the bar and they started to get into an argument and the serb pulled the gun and mm. held us all at gunpoint with a silencer against the wall it was quite an amazing experience because the croatian man basically begged for our lives you know he he was speaking in another language you know incredible impassioned monologue that i did not understand But it was really moving, and so I ended up signing up for an open mic at a local theater down in the East Village, and um, I ended up writing kind of a story about that, and I played all the characters, and that did sort of well, and so I performed it around at a lot of different venues. Um, Mm -hmm. There were venues that would pay you to produce a show, and there were people that would You know, other artists, we worked sort of cooperatively. Like I worked at a number of different small theaters there in the East Village, and someone would direct your show, and then you could direct their show, and you you could apply for small uh, grants to do um, a show at a a given theater. Uh, A lot of theaters would open their doors late night to performers who were working on shows. So I did another show. That was called The Liver of a Tourist. It was after I took a trip to San Salvador and uh, Central America. And so that involved several different characters. I played a man. I dressed up as a CIA (laughs) operative. And I had a friend of mine that's a man dress up. He wore a tuxedo and he pretended to be my German shepherd. So he played his role down on his hands and knees and I was in a man's suit and, you know, It was fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. The
0: story that you had shared before, you got caught in the middle of uh, this diplomatic assassination, essentially assassination attempt. Where is that story? Can we find that?
1: So it it is published in a small literary magazine out of Iowa, and I'm actually going to add it to my next book. It's part of my next book. So I have taken it and kind of retooled it. It's much more of a, monologue the way that it appeared you know it's published more as a theater piece mm-hmm. and reads like that but I've now retooled it so it's more a first person narrative so I'm excited about that I also have another piece that it was a theater piece originally too that I have retooled into a story and it appeared in a collection that came out a while back called this is not Chick Lit*, and it's a standalone story okay that is going to appear on a Israeli website. It's an international short story project where they publish short pieces in a number of languages, Hebrew and, and also Eastern, some Slavic languages. It's, it's an interesting website. It's called the the Short Story Project. So
0: you had mentioned that you were working on a novel, so you are also working on another collection of short stories?
1: I think I, I'm going to finish the novel once I finish this collection. It just was not the right timing, I think. My son was just born, and the kind of concentration that it takes, the space that a novel, you know, the real estate that a novel takes up in in one's head, at least in mine, um, was not conducive to having a young child. I think I was so much more attuned to writing short stories that that's what I ended up doing, (laughs) mostly, while also working on this novel.
0: So how do you find time to write? So you have your child, you have your nonprofit, and you've got your novel still sort of churning around in the back of your your mind. So how do you find time?
1: The only way that I can do it is to treat myself as a Federal Express employee. You know what I mean? Like I just, I have office hours and every day from 10 to 1, I should be at my desk. And if I'm not, I'm (laughs) <laughs> not at work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I just know that those are my creative hours and that those are the times when I, my brain is working, um, with the most, you know, like a good well-oiled machine. It starts, starts falling apart later in the day. So I sort of live my life around those hours, you know, make sure that I'm, I do my work and I, I do a lot of work outside those hours in notebooks, so I take notebook and pen wherever I go, and I kind of jot things down. That's the way that I kind of keep from losing sentences, because sentences will come up, you know, at, at times that aren't my office hours, so I have to catch them while they're there.
0: And how do you hold yourself accountable?
1: Yeah, I do. I have a little uh, accountability circle of friends, other writers mostly. I've had kind of core group of colleagues. Four of them I met while I was grad school in iowa and they, we live all in different parts of the country but i also have a group here in los angeles and we try and get together once a month once every other month to spend three or four hours generating new work and we do spontaneous exercises we're off of prompts we each bring a prompt in and then lead the others in the prompt so we're getting to write spontaneously through someone else's prompt and i get a lot of material out of that process This collection that Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness is part of comes from that as well. And those people hold me accountable. I check in with them, (laughs) let them know I'm, I'm on track, and that really helps.
0: And that's really interesting that you brought that up. You're the first writer that I've spoken with who has mentioned how having a community of writers helps facilitate that creative process to, you know, for that accountability or whatever. And a lot of people think about writing as such a solitary activity, but there's really a huge community around it. And I say that even being myself a writer, so I mostly do nonfiction, but even still in my own writing practice, and I never really thought about this, but you do have to have that community for that inspiration.
1: John Cheever had a great quote about that. He always said, you know, every, every writer needs a reader. Um, it's like a kit. You can't do it alone. It's so great to have other input. I really need it. And in fact, while I was writing the novel and had a young baby, that's when I had the least time to even really get with my other writing group or even be accountable. And my husband is also someone who really helps me out. He's you know, always been a, an amazing reader. But when our son was small, he got a job on a television show and was gone. You know, And so I didn't have access to my readers and sort of my accountability support team. And it really took a toll on my, uh, my work. Mm-hmm. It was much harder for me to keep on track.
0: So let's talk about your short story, Our Lady of Perpetual sure. Sadness. First of all, the title is just, there's so much there, but let's just first begin with what is it about, what is it that you would like us to know about your story?
1: I guess my intention was to really give life to this family, the Ricks family. It's really about the narrator, Penelope Ricks, who's an academic. She's a a PhD, sort of award-winning scholar, but her life is really in disarray. And there are layers of trauma in this family that have never been really explored or dealt with, and all of the pain of this family has been sort of trapped. It's like like a bug in amber, in a way. They're all just sort of in this suspended animation. They're very estranged from each other, and they're all acting out in various ways. Um, You come to find, after the mother's suicide, that we found out that the... The mother, Penelope, the main character, her mother took her life when Penelope was maybe in eighth grade. And she calls her mother Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness. It's sort of a sarcastic name that she's assigned to her mother. And I like that because, as I mentioned, the, the sort of bug in amber idea of something that's like cast in stone, like almost religious reliquary. Like it's like this tragic saint figure that everyone sort of won't touch and that has a really really problematic relationship to. and um the penelope's brother he sort of has never moved on since losing his mom and he's kind of like a giant 44 year old man child and um the father has not dealt with it at all and penelope we find out is acting out her own little saga i don't want to spoil exactly what happens but so they are also, in a way really most religious connection to this figure of the missing mother that's what the story was really centered around
0: so you mentioned that the brother was more like a man child but when i was reading the story it seemed to me like charles ricks the father reminded me a lot mm-hmm. of uh, the big lebowski i don't know if that if there was some sort of thing going on there,
1: well, no, not not literally. Although um, that's a comp- I'll take that as a compliment. Oh, definitely. <laughs> he definitely has that sort of the dude abides in a way. He um, he kind of continues on in this sort of strange sense of denial, and his behavior is very incongruent. It's how he acts and what he says they rarely match. There's lots of sort of gaps. Gaps in his day-to-day life, gaps in his you know history, so he's a he's a, a very hard to hard to pin down kind of a figure. He and Penelope are very very. There's a really combative relationship between the two of them.
0: Right, where there's certain ideas or dynamics that you were trying to get at at this this huge contrast, so so you have this kind of big Lebowski type character and then or the dude really that you have this big dude character and then you have this academic this scholar um this sort of like this huge contrast I mean there was a lot of emotional conflict that was going on in the story I mean was there like a specific idea that you were trying to get across in that or is it just you're just reflecting you know just life
1: no I think it's it's very much based in kind of you know, the the character starts to speak to me is how I come upon these people. Like, I hear their voice in my head, you know, um, and there's some sort of urgency that they have, some need to tell the story. And so the story started, you know, in this kitchen, in in this little tiny kitchen in Honolulu, and it kept sort of unspooling, you know, and and unraveling. And what the story wanted to wrestle with was family systems, you know, when there's a tremendous amount of post-traumatic stress and drama in a family, like generational trauma, how it works on children and how these two, you know, the brother and sister, Penelope and and Sonny, have, they're like these two giant children and what they have to do in order to get through the day Reveals to me the themes of what our Western culture is so unable to look at, which is loss and pain and depression and anxiety and suicide are endemic among our young people now. And so the story really takes a look at that, like what happens if we just keep turning our back on our own lives, but they will begin our lives will kind of grow to the size of something that that will swallow us (laughs) you know Mm, right so that's what this story is about
0: now what i noticed is that um family seems to be a huge theme in your writing now i have not read this is not chiclet but you did share with me a copy of big cats and the whole thing about the loss and the pain that's you know, also another sort of re- recurring theme. And this is not to say that th- the stories are sad, but rather that the stories are are real. And one of the things that I, I really like, and I may have mentioned this to you before about your writing, is that you're able to take what um, seems like an an everyday moment or an everyday situation and somehow... It transforms into something, something extraordinary, and, and and by extraordinary I don't mean fantastic or fanatical, but just something that is more than than what you might expect. It, it takes a turn for something
1: something more it's surprising. Well, thank you, uh, thank you. I just families fascinate me, and I like the sense that. The things that happen to us, yeah, they're, they're kind of every day, but they're our own sort of, our fights are our own operas. You know what I mean? They're our own sort of Greek tragedies, and they're our own science fiction stories. You know, um, all over dinner, you know, a, a really, really strange thing can happen that might not look like it is that strange from the outside, but on the inside of people, their interiority something really profound is going on and that's you know so much about what i love about fiction is the internal conflict and the external conflict having the ability to really expose that in someone's heart you know and find out you know what it really feels like on a cellular level inside someone you know that was sort of my goal and i i really feel like i came from a generations of you know, people that had to leave, you know, whatever country they were from to come here when they were children and they never got to have childhood. They were cutting ice, you know, on the Mississippi River for my great-grandfather was an indentured child in Iowa. And he ended up like going out on the railroad and homesteading in Oregon. And so he just never knew life that wasn't work, you know. And so I feel like there's all this, sort of pain and stuff that comes when we just start to really put our hands into our own family history and and draw from it. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of where this story was coming from too.
0: And your passion for families and now understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, what you shared about, you know, your own family history, is this, you know, sort of what led you to working with
1: the young people in Day. For writing, for me, I came to writing kind of in a similar way to um, this this character in the story, Penelope, where if one has a lot of different life-threatening traumas, um, there can be a sense to reenact what happened unconsciously. You you go and you reenact things that happened to you as a way to kind of sort them out, but they never get sorted out. It just sort of looks like being in a spin cycle in a dryer. And so what this story is about is about the spin cycle being interrupted, like what happens if that's interrupted and we actually do something different and the universe changes just a little bit. So for me, there was a really, I was in this sort of terrible car accident and afterwards just couldn't kind of get my life back on track. And I started writing. I joined a little writing class and I started writing 10 minutes a day and I, it really was this healing experience for me. So, you know, for me, fiction is like a necessity that I do it. You know, it's part of how I live. And so um, I, I also come from a, a group of, you know, my female relatives always taught in communities where literacy was a struggle. You know, one taught in the Spanish Basque community in southern Oregon. She was a frontier school teacher and another taught a literacy program in the lumber camps in Oregon. So I was sort of drawn to how can writing transform and uplift not only the individual but the community. And I know for, you know, young people I see, you know, the teenage years as being this incredible time for transformation. And so I had this opportunity to visit the country of Haiti in two thousand nine and I visited a lot of rural schools and I noticed that girls were doing all the work everywhere you looked you know they were carrying water they were in the fields they were it was just almost like this workforce of women everywhere and I asked about it and they're like you know that's pretty much girls stop going to school in third grade if they go through third grade at all. so I started asking around and I ended up speaking to this group of young girls at a school and I asked about their hopes and dreams and one said, you know, I work 11 hours in the field, but I'd really want to be a singer. And if I could sing, this is what I would do. And she started singing and everyone got so excited. And I was saying, you know, why is everyone so excited right now? You know, cause there was just sort of pandemonium breaking out. And they're like, well, she doesn't really talk. We didn't know that. You know, we didn't know. And so I thought, wow, the arts are just this incredible bridge, you know, to the soul and, what would happen if schooling was supplemented with writing and photography and visual art and theater games. And then I went home. And then in 2010, the terrible earthquake in Haiti happened. And I found out about a program that was offering a two-week arts workshop, of all things, to young women, like age 12 to 20, in displacement camps in Port-au-Prince. And so uh, my husband, who's an actor, and myself, we went down there with a photographer and um, a visual artist, and we did a two-week workshop in the displacement camp for, like, 40 women, like 12 to 30. And the transformation in these women um, was just really astonishing to us. Um, we watched women that were basically isolated and you know, grief-stricken and just completely alone suddenly create community, become mentors for each other, a support network. It became this study in finding inner resiliency and finding basically hope and a sense of well-being which was there but just needed to be accessed and I think we saw that this program could be replicated we hoped that it could be. And so we went and we visited lots of communities throughout Haiti because we didn't want to go somewhere without being invited. And we met these sort of wonderful teachers in the Artibonite region of Haiti, which is where we work now, which is one of the poorest areas of the country. Um, It's like a red zone for malnutrition and disease. and, And also there are seasonal floods and you know, there's a a lot of, of trauma that lives in this region, and that's just you know at the basic level. Then there's the history of Haiti, colonialism, and market exploitation, and you know it's just a tough, challenging um, region for these girls to grow up in. So we started this program, and we started at a in a village school. And now it has grown through word of mouth and invitation to be 14 villages. We work out of 14 villages and with about 750 girls. We offer scholarships for those that apply and and we do on social entrepreneurship and a literacy program and uh, vocational training in a computer lab, a mobile computer lab. We go through just donated cameras, so um, we've... You know, had lots of donations of equipment and laptops and things. And that's where we are. That's what we do. And and so it's a, a staff of about 80 Haitian women and maybe five men. So about 96% women. And we, uh, so that's what I do in the afternoon. So I write in the morning and then I do the nonprofit work until five. So your
0: work with Lede is is strictly humanitarian. So, I mean, it's like, you just see that there is this need for so much. These girls need so much and you're just opening your heart to help them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, for me, you know, writing, it's an incredible thing to be able to write fiction and I I love it. And it's definitely my soul's calling, you know, one of them, but I also, it's really important for me to offer access to education. I really believe in social justice and, you know, in the world right now, the greatest solution to some of the inequality that we face as a planet is that we offer, you know, the education of women and girls is is basically (laughs) the way we can really, really help our planet transform. Uh, for every girl that's educated, she affects 100 people positively in her sphere. It's the way to change the face of the world is, is to offer education and help women, empower women. So I've always been a real believer in empowering women. And so it's been a real privilege to be able to work on this project
0: and so I guess my next question would be why you why holiday I guess it's
1: why not (laughs) I just have always wanted to do exactly what I'm doing it's just strange I felt like I always wanted to write and I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to support and champion other women writing stories
0: And does this humanitarian work at all have some influence on your creativity
1: as a writer? Um, It does. I have a new story that's going to come out in Plowshares that um, was set in Haiti. It's based on a story of a very different mind. So that's going to come out in the solo series that they have, and it'll be part of the new book, too.
0: And do you know when the Plowshares story will come out? Yeah, it's sometime between
1: now and 2020, so we okay. are going to let, li- you know, those. the literary magazines can take a bit.
0: And are there any other new projects or new stories, either with your nonprofit or, or anything else that we should be looking out for?
1: Well, I am going to be doing, there are two novellas that are part of the new collection, so those are being submitted right now. And as well as two other short stories. So I'm thinking they'll probably get out there somewhere pretty soon. They're all part of the new book, which I think the title is Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness. That okay. will be really the next thing that comes out.
0: That's very interesting. I look forward to that. So I'm really excited that you are writing two novellas because I try to share novellas with people who subscribe to our book club. Oh, great. So hopefully we'll be able to um, feature your novella as uh, one of our short stories of the month.
1: I would love that. I would love it. Thank you. I love what you guys are doing. It's wonderful. Thanks. I follow you on Instagram too. It's really inspiring. And I love that you support short stories, Uh, you know, the the form, because I feel like the form needs a champion. It's very special.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And so where can we
1: find you online? So I'm my most, you know, active places at Holiday Reinhorn on Instagram. Do
0: you want to spell that for us?
1: Oh, Holiday. So at H-O-L-I-D-A-Y-R-E-I-N-H-O-R-N. And uh, you can also check out our organization online, www.leadahaiti.org or on Instagram, at Lidae Haiti.
0: All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you at this moment. Is there anything else that you want to share?
1: No, I mean, I just really appreciate um, you reaching out. It was really a joy to talk to you today. And I would just say to anyone listening, just keep reading. Keep reading short stories. They are just a really important part of the body of literature, you know, of our history. They're so American, you know, they were created in America and they are, you know, one of our national treasures. So read lots of short stories, buy lots of short story collections.
0: Okay. Thank you for agreeing to talk with us. Thanks, Donna. Well, that's it for another great episode of Short Story Discussions. Brought to you by Short Story Book Club. Would you like to become a member of the club? Visit us online at shortstorybookclub.com to subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Your story matters, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for being part of today's episode. See you next time.